This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley and politics is back in a big, big way. It's almost like it never went away. Uh, Coming up on today's episode, Lucy Fisher, Times Radio's chief political commentator, takes me through all of the big political issues which are going to unfold this week, this month, maybe till the end of the year too. Uh, Before that, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. No Fingerich today because Danny Finkelstein is away. So David Aronovich is joined by Robert Colville. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, no Finkelvich this week because Danny Finkelstein is away. But David Ivanovich is here in the studio, live. I know, radical, hey? Who knew you owned trousers? I had no idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're on the, the other line. Uh, so da- uh, David is here and uh, joining us uh, down the line, Robert Colville. Uh, t- Sunday Times columnist joins us. Morning, Robert. Morning. Um, we'll touch on this briefly because it feels a bit odd to have spoken about it quite so much over the past 10 days to so then not reflect on it at all. Uh, the aftermath of the mourning period is the, the <laughs> there is presumably a period, the period, a new period now that, um, uh, David, I, are you trying to tell me that we're now in post mourning? Is that the official period we're in? Well, I, think it's, I think it's still royal, royal mourning, but we are allowed to stop our mourning. Okay, good. Um, right. So, so what, so, so what are we allowed to say now? <laughs> you can say what you like now. Oh, we can say whatever we like I think now. so. As long, okay. as, you, as long as you don't go full Robert Crampton and swear, it's fine. Well, it's not the full Robert Crampton, but I was trying to interest you in the question of people's dreams about the Queen. Uh, <laughs> you, wouldn't, you weren't having any of it because you were in the morning period. You weren't allowed to think about how people actually thought about the Queen. So, so I'm a bit confused. And now we're in the kind of post-morning. I kind of feel that the moment has passed, I think really. the moment to discuss your teenage dreams about the Queen and... Teenage dreams? Probably... Everybody dreams about the Queen. Why, why will we not recognise this? help us. Help us. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just getting a vision of Times Leader Conference now. This is the... <laughs> um, uh, Robert, what, what are your reflections on... Well, in fact, David, you thought um, there's, there's now a moment where we can all look back at, you know, turn our attention back to a, a feeling of national decline. Um, it's not so much the, the uh, national decline. I mean, the, the thing is, we've had this kind of uh, fortnight of unreality, mm. and now reality kicks in. I mean, I think it's been like what it must be like all year round in a one-party state 
uh, for the last two weeks, which is you're only allowed to kind of say one thing and talk about one thing, and it's all kind of in a particular way. And then all of a sudden, we're back in democratic, messy politics and economics as usual without having to you know talk about things as uh, in a particular in a particular specified way um and that's what we now face it's obvious really it's not i'm not i'm not making any kind of you know huge insight there uh, all of a sudden the talk is of strikes in liverpool or mm. um or, or the cost of living crisis and so on it's not so much of one party. If, if the government isn't saying anything, the opposition isn't saying anything, the unions aren't going on strike, nobody is saying or doing anything, the news does stop in, to a large degree. No, 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 come on. It, it, for example, it was incredibly difficult to get any... There was only one kind of set of emotions that was specified by everybody on the media. You And everybody was supposed to be feeling this and thinking that, etc. Well, if you just had to go and see the film The Queen, you will remember that back in 1997, people weren't thinking those things. Or back to the Annas Horribilis and the Queen's tax affairs, they weren't thinking those things then. Or... Dare I say it, Prince Andrew, very, very, very much more recently, people weren't thinking it, thinking it then. But you get corralled into this sort of notion that you are a unified nation, all thinking and feeling one thing. So, and now we're let out of that pen and we can actually say what we like. Uh, Robert, you were drawing some parallels with the death of Queen Victoria. Yeah, I think um, it, it's really interesting. If you go back and look at what they were they were saying, um, and it was it was actually very it was actually very Theresa May. It was like nothing has changed, nothing <laughs> has changed. They they were they were giving you some these amazing these tributes to, to Queen Victoria, which were exactly the same as the tributes to Queen Elizabeth. She was you know she was a constitutional monarch. She led by example. Her you know her character, her her morality, her decency were the thing that people will remember. She was a fixed point in people's lives. And then they kind of moved into this sort of. Um, but of course, you know, nothing's changed. We're we're still a, still a great country. Every, everything's good. The, the Boer War, just a little local difficulty. We'll be, <laughs> we'll, we'll be fine. We've got the, the you know, the, 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 the king. We can assure everyone the new king is a man of upstanding moral character. Never mind that he hasn't had, had enough mistresses to get his own section on Wikipedia. I was, um, it was interesting because I, re I reread some of the Times coverage from 1952. And even there, there was talk of, well, the BBC's been accused of going a bit over the top. And, <laughs> uh, you know, there's there's been controversies and we need to now look at, you know, there are day-to-day -day things that concern. Yeah. So, yeah, again, nothing is new. Well, Robert's just reminded me of something which is really interesting. Towards the end of uh, uh, Victoria's life, you get the beginning of the Boer War. At, during the Boer War, one of the problems that they discovered they had was that the soldiers that they were sent sending to fight the Boers weren't fit. They were uh, suffering from years and years of their parents and others not eating sufficiently, not eating sufficiently well, and so on. And it was one of the things that created some of the early demands for the welfare state in the wake of the Boer War. And yet you had all this kind of imperial glory and we're the best and sort of great huge tall guardsmen, etc., from probably the best schools, uh, whereas a lot of your working class kids were incredibly poor. Now, of course, you have to be careful about the kind of parallels that you, you want to draw. But nevertheless, these occasions disguise more than they reveal. I do wonder, though, uh, Robert, whether because it's been so stark, you know, to have got a new prime minister... And then gone into this period, they actually the the the, the sort of the the I don't know it's the elastic snapping back or the pendulum swing, whatever it is, is going to be pretty uh, stark this week. You know, Liz Liz Truss is obviously in New York. We're getting big, all the announcements she wants to make a good sort of concertina into this week. Uh, and you've your column at the weekend in the Sunday Times was really interesting. We've got a new new sort of cakeism. Normally, cakeism in politics is about uh, Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson wanted to have his cake and eat it. Now we're talking about growing the cake. 
even if it's not always uh, necessarily in the fairest way. The idea is, well, if the cake is bigger, everyone's happier. Yeah, this is. I mean, and this is the, the sort of classic Thatcherite analysis. I mean, I, I quoted in my column this um, the speech she gave in 1979, which made the you know the classic example that you know if we just focus on who gets what share, then then the cake doesn't grow. The only way for everyone to and you know and we fall to rancor and division. The only way to to, to help everyone is to make the economy bigger. And I, I think this is the kind of this is the sort of guiding orthodoxy, not just of of, of trust, but of quasi quoting um, and 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 the people around them. You know, it's 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 not just about tax cuts. It's about this idea that the sort of again sort of classic metaphor that the you know that we've been if you sort of picture the sort of dynamism of the economy as a as a rushing stream it's that you know, we've been dropping pebbles and stones and rocks in it for for decades and gradually they've they've slowed it down to to basically a trickle so what they you know that so their kind of self-appointed mission is to is to get rid of is, is to get dredging well I, yeah i mean robert this really doesn't work actually i mean uh, i mean uh, and i'm not saying by that i'm not saying by that i don't want to worry you robert but david's got a graph out in front of it well, I, 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 it, 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 it interested me yeah. to look at this question question of business investment um, growth um, uh, amongst economies. Um, if you really and seriously wanted growth to be your main factor, you would never, ever have voted for or supported Brexit. But it's absolutely clear, you're also looking at the same graph as I am, you have quite good business growth, investment growth, not too bad um, from uh, 2010 onwards. And it just completely collapses after, well, it just st completely stabilises, um, uh, whereas other people's grows at 2016. There's the point. You can see it. Uh, so if you really were seriously, simply interested in the business of growth, what you would do is you'd say we must have a closer relationship with the EU and mend quite a lot of those fences and possibly even think about uh, our relationship with the single market. But they're not going to do that. The other problem is, and I know that you agree with this, actually, um, is you can have significant uh, levels of growth, but not everybody participates in it. And consequently, a series of stats which we've seen during the course of the week show that during the periods of best growth, the richest in Britain grew significantly richer, but our poorer people now had the same kind of levels of, uh, uh, of personal income as the people in Slovenia uh, and, parts of, and parts of Eastern Europe. So, it's not. It really isn't as simple as you just grow and that's it and everybody's going to be happy. And I know that you know that. And then finally, there are the questions which you do raise, and I know you're very keen on, which are the things that you would have to do in order to get significantly higher growth, which conservatives simply hate doing, like <laughs> getting rid of planning uh, uh, regulations which stop you, let's say, growing business parks or growing uh, housing in areas where you need it. And by the way, no one has managed to convince me that somehow the high growth is compatible necessarily with the business of levelling up as a major as a major target. So I'd love to hear what you think about that. Well, it's an interesting point because it's sort of you can understand maybe you can you can see the the the, the theory uh, that Liz Truss is 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 quasi quite trying to pursue, but it's all going to come crashing into political reality. The, the conservative voters don't like houses being built near, near them. Uh, the idea that the way to uh, uh, um, win public favour is to take away all their rights at work, the idea that, you know, make them work longer and take away holiday rights and all that, it might, on the face of it, possibly boost productivity or growth, possibly. But it's not going to win you an election, is it? 
Well, so I think there's, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I mean, so I, I think the, the gamble they're taking, I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, the right to work stuff I haven't really seen. And I, I'd be surprised if they if they did that. Um, I think that, you know, the, the gamble they're making is that people, you know, we, we've had we've had a series of governments, especially Boris's, which basically kind of, every time the focus groups got antsy, every time MPs got grumbly, they, they U-turned. And I think the the, the trust um, gamble is like we'll do some things which people don't don't necessarily agree with that people don't think are good. But you know, if they see if they see we're doing them because we believe in them and because we think it's for the best long term, and then crucially, if it does actually work long term, then that will be a good thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, D David's points are, are actually in, entangled with each other. That you know, one of the reasons that growth has been sort of distorted in this country is because we've had an absolutely massive boom in asset prices. You now have a situation where I think it's seventy two percent of over six. 60s own their homes outright. There are there are more people who own their homes without a mortgage than own their homes with a mortgage. And but we have made it incredibly hard for younger people to get homes, mm. to get to to, you know, to get on the housing ladder, to share to share that wealth. That's an absolutely core part of any of any growth strategy, which comes back to the point about it not being about tax cuts. Um, and on on business investment, um, I, I didn't actually vote for Brexit. Um, but my my view and a lot of other people's view is was once that decision was democratically made, you have to try to make it work, and you don't make it work by just creating a sort of shabby facsimile of eu membership i mean i think the problem on business investment it wasn't the fact of Brexit. it was that we then had three years of absolute massive rampant uncertainty in which the political class had a collective meltdown and no one was actually sure what the arrangements were going to be and then we had the pandemic and then we had um wow well, actually, actually robert the stats seem to suggest that it happened at the almost at the moment of the uh, referendum and uh, uh, result and not actually during the course but also of the, but you can't disentangle the, the fact of... that we we have absolutely we have one of the i mean we've, we've done of the things I've run has done piles of work on this. We have one of the least conducive tax regimes to business investment in the entire Western world. I mean, you know, we we don't. I mean, in fact, to pay for his headline corporation tax cuts, George Osborne actually reduced investments to in to in, in invest in in business. So it's it's not much one much wonder that we've been bumping around the down on well, the bottom for about twenty years. Well, also the wrong and also in the wrong things. I mean, so we're now paying the penalty, for instance, for cutting the level of government support for investment in conservation in energy conservation, which would have been an obvious win but was a victim of austerity directly after 2010 uh, yeah and i suppose we've talked a lot about um the problem with short-termism that actually that that more than anything else you know investing in anything doing anything knowing you might not be around to reap the benefits but it might be good for the country well where's our heathrow runway Heathrow. So what know, happened? Nu yeah. nuclear power stations houses doctors yeah. as a whole yeah. as a whole list i mean they, they published a, the, the ferrovial i think it was um said you know building hs2 it's like it's 20 times as expensive per kilometer than building something in spain which is just unsustainable let's turn our attention to brown food uh, there's a story in the Times today. The average British diet has hardly improved over the past 30 years, despite widespread appeals for us to watch what we eat. Unlike that of our Mediterranean counterparts, the British diet is still seen as too beige. We are eating more vegetables and nuts, but we also eat more red meat, sugary drinks and salt, apparently. I'd be really interested to see how those figures differentiate by social groups and by age. I really, really, I really, really would. I mean, it's one of these things where you, I think you kind of need to dig into the demographics a bit to see exactly what's going on and whether there are um, some changes happening um, around around the edges. Because, I mean, just kind of anecdotally, it, it, my my kids don't eat what we used to. They just don't. Yeah. We yeah. I mean, I'm, we used to have like a fry up for tea once a week. <laughs> Well, I always remember going around to a mate's house because he used to have he used to have egg and chips every night with with white bread and butter and yeah. a cup of tea, yeah, and that was their, that was a supper. I don't know very many people who eat like that now. 
I definitely remember a conversation once where there's somebody that I have some more bread and butter. So no, I think I've had some more ham. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we have some more bread and butter. You need to fill up on that. Uh, Robert, I mean, my, my suspicion is that uh, the idea of doing anything about this might be a bit nanny statish for uh, Liz Truss. I, th I think that that may be right, and you've you've seen some reports about um, ditching the the existing strategy. Although the statistics suggest the existing strategy doesn't seem to be working that well. If uh, if, if, if yeah, it's that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, but I mean, this is this is fascinating stuff, and I think I, I think David is right. I think there's a huge socio-economic element to this. I mean, I, I I've done some fundraising work on um, uh, for liver research for for family-related uh, reasons, and I asked the doctors like, what's the big what's what's the sort of single biggest thing you could do to get you know most bang for buck? What's the biggest intervention? And they basically said just stop people drinking and stop people eating burgers yeah like every, you know all of so many of the nhs's problems are completely downstream from the fact that we you know that um that we all have i mean i'm i'm as guilty as anyone actually the the pandemic did see me get my delivery plus membership card um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and your it, sunday uh, times wine wine uh, club, club uh, delivery yeah. no, I'm, I'm fully signed up to that <laughs> they they bribed us into it we got instead of a christmas party they gave us like a 10 pound sunday times wine club voucher and now i can't get out of it it just keeps turning up. It's I know. It's, excellent value. The it trouble ended, is, it's so delicious. I know, through inertia, it ended up with me having, I hardly drink at all, with three cases of red wine, which will take me about five years to drink through. Yeah, it just keeps coming. Yeah. You just keep shoving bottles. You can stop one. it, you know. <laughs> you I don't. I feel but, bad. But why would you want to? It feels disloyal. Um, uh, David, as you're here, because I've wearing many other hats on, you present a podcast. And I just wanted to talk, there's stories of our times podcast. I wanted to talk about this, the um, serial, which loads of people will be familiar with, the uh, the podcast uh, which looked at the case of Adnam Syed, who's just been released from prison. And I just wonder whether this is a sort of an example of podcast, well, this is a good podcast rather than just people chatting inanely, which you might be getting if you're listening to this other podcast. Um, a sort of podcast coming of age as a, as a vehicle of journalism. Um, it's, it's very interesting, and I make a distinction. There was a... a, a, a wanted for some time to write about the podcast from uh, Australia, which is called The Teacher's Pet, where actually somebody who was guilty of murdering his wife has just been found guilty after he killed her in 1982. He was found guilty this year. That's 40 years. Yeah. And the podcast work by as a journalist for the Australian newspaper is absolutely extraordinary. Now, Serial, which is one that I know less well um, because I haven't listened to uh, a lot of it, but which was the kind of earliest one of these... Um, Let's be clear. Firstly, this chap has not been found not guilty yeah. and so on. He's not been cleared. Uh, the recommendation is for either to have dropped the charges and to acquit him or to have a retrial and so on. Um, and that would be a considerable that would be a considerable virtue. But I do notice in true crime podca podcasts there is an incredible variation in quality. So <laughs> let's just be careful out yeah, there. Absolutely. Well, there's no variation in quality in stories of our times. No, it's very Never. good when Manveen does it and less good when you, you do it. <laughs> that, is, that is so true. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. David and Robert then. Of course, you can read David in the Times every Thursday, Robert in the Sunday Times every, yes, Sunday. Uh, just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, Politics is Back. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Go on then. Uh, we'll play it one more time and then we won't play it again. Guess who's back, 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 back again, again, again. Politics is back, back, back. Tell your friends, friends, friends. Politics is back, 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 politics is back. Yeah, when Patrick, Patrick Maguire told me don't play it more than once, he was correct. He was correct on that. Anyway, politics is back, but far more excitingly, Lucy Fisher is back. Hooray! Hi, Matt. Oh, uh, Lucy Fisher, Times Radio's chief political commentator is back. And, and what a time to return to the political fray. Well, absolutely. Uh, I have to say, obviously, it's been right that there has been this period of national mourning, but uh, I have certainly missed the usual politics uh, and I'm delighted uh, it all comes back with the big bang today. Just tell Times Radio readers where you've been. I have been on maternity leave, uh, having my first child, a daughter, who uh, is uh, lovely and sleeping well so far. Terrific news. Terrific news. Well, you'll be fine because you'll be away at party conferences soon, so you can... Have reprieve, a great night's sleep. <laughs> Have a good night's sleep. <laughs> uh, now, so yes, politics is very much back in a big way. With a new Prime Minister, I hope he's hit the ground running again with a new government. So we've got two weeks' worth of announcements planned over the next just three days. Liz Truss has given her new cabinet the job of laying out key packages on energy, the NHS and the economy, all of which, of course, were key priorities in her speech outside number 10. I have a bold plan to grow the economy through tax cuts and reform. I will cut taxes to reward hard work and boost business-led growth and investment. I will drive reform in my mission to get the United Kingdom working, building and growing. We'll get spades in the ground to make sure people are not facing unaffordable energy bills. And we will also make sure that we are building hospitals, schools, roads and broadband. I will deal hands-on with the energy crisis caused by Putin's war. I will take action this week to deal with energy bills and to secure our future energy supply. I will make sure that people can get doctor's appointments and the NHS services they need. We will put our health service on a firm footing. So a lot to unpack there, uh, Lucy. I mean, to some extent, uh, it's an opportunity for Liz just to sort of start again. But actually, what 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 we've seen so far is sort of raised more questions than they've answered. Well, I think that uh, is right. I, I think it's all very well to talk about um, growth in one sense. You know, which prime minister, which administration hasn't wanted to boost growth? But there was a great article in the Sunday Times, I thought, by Ed Conway. Um, Sky's economics editor, um, who often writes for, for the Times and Sunday Times, pointing out that actually some of the quickest ways to uh, turbocharge growth are politically toxic. One of the big levers is immigration, allow people to come to this country and feed into the economy. But of course, that's something the Conservative government 
has promised to guard against. And the second uh, thing that would make a really big difference would be to rip up planning laws. Again, that is very, very difficult for a Conservative government to do when it's under pressure in the Green Belt, in the prosperous uh, traditional shire seats, where their voters are very concerned about, uh, about developments um, being built. And let's focus on uh, energy then. Uh, tomorrow, we're expected to get the uh, new business and energy secretary, Jacob Rees-Mogg, announcing how he plans to tackle the energy crisis. What do we know about what he's going to say? And in particular, uh, Liz Truss, in her statement on that Thursday, Thursday 8th of September, I mean, it was pretty remarkable because she stood up and said she was going to do the thing that she'd refused to commit to at any point during the Tory leadership contest, which was freeze bills at £2,500, as suggested by the Liberal Democrats and the Labour Party, and then gave no information as to how it was going to be paid for. Well, that's right, and with estimates that this package could cost £150 billion, it's just absolutely uh, eye-watering, far eclipses um, the furlough package during the pandemic. Um, and indeed, as you say, Liz Truss, you know, talked during the Tory leadership contest about, uh, you know, her scorn for what she termed handouts. Uh, and there are a lot of concerns now about whether this is all going to come from borrowing, not least in a period of inflation, um, the, what that will do in terms of heaping uh, up new costs on uh, debt interest payments. We know that this year that that's going to cost the country £83 billion just paying the interest on our current debt, and that will go up further. So I think we're going to see a lot more scrutiny of how much the government is spending on debt interest payments as well if the government is going to borrow more. Oh, well, let's bring in uh, Abby Jatendra from uh, Citizens Advice, who's joined us uh, several times over, re over recent weeks to discuss uh, the energy uh, bills issue. Hi, Abby. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, it was, I, mean, uh, I think we, we spoke, didn't we, during the course of that afternoon after Liz Truss made her announcement of £2,500. But we don't really know much more now than we did then. Absolutely. So we're still looking for clarity on, as Lucy says, how, how it's paid for. Um, we're also interested in whether there's going to be any additional support for people who are on the very lowest incomes. From Citizens Advice data, we know that um, even though we've been in summer and it's been a relatively warm summer, um, we are still breaking unwelcome records on the number of people coming to us, uh, you know, looking for help with crisis support. And while, while there was a small dip um, right after the government's cost of living payments, it's, you know, it's resurging now. So lots of questions still for the package, as well as what support there's going to be for small more businesses um, who we know are really struggling through our advice channels. And two and a half, the average, obviously it depends on your usage and the size of your, your house and so on, but the freezing the bills in the average of two and a half thousand pounds, we shouldn't forget that's only saying that bills are only going to double compared to last year rather than treble. The, how many people do you think are going to struggle with that sort of two and a half thousand pound figure? Look, let, let, let's let's not get it mistaken. This is a huge and very welcome package that government has put in place. But you're absolutely right. We are still at you know record levels of energy costs, and we know that people are really struggling. So absolutely, we we expect still, unfortunately, millions of people to find it very difficult to pay their energy bills this year. Um, and so we need government to be primed and ready, looking at what more support is needed um, to, to to be in place to make sure this winter isn't quite so challenging. And in, in terms of we talk about small business, because that's another thing that we're potentially going to see from Jacob Rees-Mogg tomorrow is, is some uh, greater clarity on support for business. Are you getting people coming to Citizens Advice who own their own businesses and, and they're also worried about the future? 
Yeah, so so at Citizens Advice, we we have a specific remit to give support to the smallest businesses, and actually we're seeing some really heartbreaking stories. So someone who owns a small um, sandwich shop on the high street who just got a hit hit with a bill of eleven thousand pounds for the next year of their energy costs, which is you know several times more than what they were paying before, and they've had to make the very difficult decision to to you know think think about closing down. So that has an impact on all of us um, when when our high streets and our our local communities change. So obviously really welcome that government is going to step in but for some people it is far too late they've already had to make that difficult decision and we're really hoping that there there is more clarity there and i suppose the, the risk then if they do decide to close their businesses they might employ a handful of people and then those people then end up facing challenges themselves and maybe end up back at your door as well Absolutely. I mean, it's it's not quite the growth that that we're that we're sort of looking for, is it? Um, so we really hope there's some more clarity there. And then finally, I think the other thing we're going to be looking for on Friday is, you know, looking long term. The best way to get our bills down um, going forward is to make sure that 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 money that we're pouring into our energy bills isn't going out the window or the door through the leaky, drafty homes that that many of us live in. So that means really looking at energy efficiency. It's it's, it's quite boring, isn't it, to think insulation is going to save us but insulation really will make such a difference and people need support to be able to insulate their homes better that's how our bills will go down significantly in the long term let me just bring in lucy um what about the 150 pound disability uh, payment uh, help that's being brought in today what difference will that make is it enough so it'll definitely make a difference. We know that disabled people are struggling more um, and they obviously have higher energy costs uh, because of um, sometimes specific medical conditions that um, they have. So it will make a difference. But again, £150 is is uh, sort of dropping the ocean for, for the increase that we're seeing. Um, there's obviously the £350 cost of living payment and a, a payment for older people as well. So this will all make a difference. But um, unfortunately, as, as we're seeing through our data, it's been a warm summer, but people are still struggling. It's only going to get worse in winter. It always does. So it's not a case of we need support right now, but we need government to be making sure that people who are on the very lowest incomes um, are, are having, you know, a the support that they need. I mean, just remind us, if people are um, uh, needing some help, how can they come up, go about accessing uh, Citizens Advice? So just, just search uh, Citizens Advice on Google. We've got loads of information on our website. There's numbers you can call as well. Um, and as I said, it's for uh, you know ordinary people, households, but also if you run a small business as well. Top advice. Abby, really good to speak to you. Um, we'll no doubt uh, speak again. Abby Jatender there from Citizens Advice. Just before we move on from energy, uh, Lucy, the other aspect of this, and we were talking to uh, Lara Spirit about this earlier on, is, is is where climate change and interest in climate change, commitment to the, the, the targets comes in. Liz Truss not attending a roundtable that Boris Johnson made a big uh, uh, show of attending last year, I think in part because we were hosting COP26 um, a few weeks later. But... Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg's commitment to enthusiasm for uh, the the climate change cause and what impact that might have on the government. What, what, what do we know so far? Well, we certainly know that he has warned against climate alarmism in the past. Uh, so he's perhaps a little bit more sceptical uh, than his predecessor, Kwasi Kwarteng, in that role uh, overseeing the energy brief. And there are a lot of environmental activists who are very concerned that he has become the business secretary. I think we have to see what happens next. Um, one of the big pieces of legislation that was going through uh, the Commons and actually was just making its way through the end of the of the process in the Lords was an energy security bill um, before Boris Johnson left Downing Street. 
And that is really important, I think, uh, to ensure that the UK doesn't end up in the same position again, being uh, in hock to a country like Russia um, for uh, the energy supply or ensuring that, you know, we get most of our uh, gas, of course, from Norway and Qatar. But if we're trying to battle with other nations in the West that were receiving supplies from Russia, we do need to think more long term, even medium term, about planning for energy security. It's failure to invest in nuclear and renewables in particular that's seen us facing these um, exorbitant cost rises this winter um, that are causing so much political problems. So a little bit of a worry also that, that the Trust administration has said it's parked that bill for the moment. They really need to get on and work out what they're going to be doing to invest. It was also striking that they announced that sort of in the, in the midst of that reshuffle uh, a fortnight ago that, that Graham Stewart is the Minister for Climate Change. He'll be attending Cabinet. And that was seen as a, possibly a concession to some Conservatives who were worried about Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, holding that brief because, like you said, he'd said that uh, the goal of uh, net zero by 2050 was a long way off and a huge regulatory cost. Let's turn our attention now to Thursday. The new Health Secretary and Deputy Prime Minister, Therese Coffey, is to be set out her big health plan. Lucy Fisher, what's going to be in it? A, B, C, D. That's uh, ambulances, backlogs, care and doctors and dentists. So it's actually a double D. Um, really, we it's no surprise that uh, Liz Truss mentioned the NHS as one of her three priorities in the two-ish years she has before she has to call the next election. The backlog um, for people in the UK waiting for hospital treatment um, following the COVID pandemic has now reached 6.73 million. That is 10% of the UK's population that is awaiting hospital treatment. It is a crisis. And with uh, clockwork predictability, it's now September. The warnings about yet another winter crisis for the NHS are ramping up. Also, the uh, suggestion from Trust during the Tory leadership campaign that she was going to divert the £13 billion um, raised from the national insurance uh, rise, which by the way, she's going to shelve, we'll come on to that in a minute, <laughs> that she would divert that money that had been earmarked for the NHS to care, I think is also a source of great concern to all the people that work in the health service. Because if anything, the criticism of the national insurance rise was that it was originally sold as a social care uh, levy. levy. And then we were told that the money had actually going to go to the NHS to deal with the backlogs early on. And people were like, well, fine, because there is backlogs they need dealing with as well. And then the money's going to supposedly be taken uh, away from them. I suppose one of the things that really struck me was just that Liz Truss sort of on the steps of number 10, albeit in the street outside number 10, specifically talked about GP appointments, doctor's appointments. And that's clearly become, I remember during some of those by-lectures we've had, the Lib Dems had it plastered all over their uh, leaflets when we did our focus group down in Tiverton and Honiton. It was one of the things that came up all the time. It feels like a real sort of doorstep issue, which is finally reached Downing Street. Yeah, and I think a big issue has been uh, the refusal of many uh, individual GPs and practices to return to in-person appointments. Telemedicine's all well and good uh, for some people, I think perhaps younger people, people who work and like the flexibility of having a quick phone call or even a video call. But I think many people feel there are conditions where they need to be physically examined and they're fed up that their GP isn't offering that. There's also um, issues that really the government should have acted quicker to fix regarding, for example, um, pension rules that mean for some GPs nearing the end of their careers on high salaries, it's now more cost effective for them to retire early um, than continue to work and see um, issues with their pensions. So I think there are going to be attempts to change that. But trying to people to offer in-person appointments, I think it's going to be a bit more difficult. Well, let's bring in uh, Miriam Deakin, Interim Chief Executive of NHS Providers, which, which 
which represents uh, NHS uh, bodies. Miriam, uh, good to have you with us. Uh, describe for us, if you can, what is the current situation in the NHS uh, and its ability to cope with the pressures? Hi, Matt. Morning. Thanks for having me. Um, as, as you indicated, that the pressures across the NHS do remain high. Uh, so many trust leaders would say that the, the summer we've just been through was, was worse than any winter. I mean, there is good news. Uh, the NHS has made huge strides forward in virtually eliminating the numbers of patients who are waiting more than two years for a planned operation. In the latest performance stats, we also saw uh, improvements in activity levels for, for cancer and improvements, reductions in the, the length of time people are waiting uh, around the 18 month mark. So we've made a lot of progress, uh, but as in other sectors, the NHS's budget is being impacted by inflation. Uh, and as you alluded to there, there are some big political questions around NHS funding coming up, thinking about the, the national insurance uh, increase and we do hear across the board that the the NHS both across health and care are tired there's a lot of work that we want to do with the new government to look at workforce planning and how we support the workforce a bit better going forwards uh, and what are are there some big quick easy cheap ideas that, that uh, Therese Coffey can sort of pull out the bag on Thursday or is this another example of actually something that the, the if you wanted to solve this problem now, you needed to have done something two or three years ago, maybe five, six, seven, eight years ago to train up some doctors. It is the truth that the idea of saying outside Downing Street, I want people to be able to see a doctor when they want to see one. Is that a long term ambition or are there some some sort of real smart, tangible things that could happen sooner? I think it's a bit of both. So I think there's a lot that the NHS is already planning for ahead of this winter. Uh, so NHS England, for, for the first time ever, got, got its winter plan out in July this year. So that's indicative, I think, of, of how seriously the sector is, is taking uh, the coming months. Uh, and trusts and their, their system partners have plans in place to bring in additional call handlers for 999, for example. There are plans to free up the equivalent of 30,000 additional beds over this winter period. And that's a combination of extra physical beds, but also offering different and new support for patients in their homes uh, via virtual wards as they're becoming known. Um, so lots that we can do thinking about the right pathways for people if they're in mental health crisis, for example, it's often not right for, for patients to be sitting in an, a busy A&E department. There are often other pathways, other services that we can put in place for them. So there's a lot that the NHS and its partners can do for this winter and is doing. But exactly as you allude to, some of these problems have built up over many years. And we would say that, that really they the root causes predate the pandemic and the pandemic has perhaps brought them to the fore and exacerbated them. Uh, so we do need to think, I think, with government about how we plan further ahead for our workforce in the NHS. We've got huge numbers of vacancies at the moment, over 130,000. And every individual vacancy, of course, puts more pressure on other staff who are working in the NHS. There are some things we can do around pay terms and conditions. So you mentioned their pensions, which is a really important one. But we do need to look at the, the workforce across health and care in the round with government. We also know that this government, uh, the Prime Minister and Therese Coffey are very interested in uh, realising the government's manifesto commitment around building 40 new hospitals. So there's definitely a conversation, I think, to be had around capital investment in the NHS. We saw in the recent heatwave, actually, how, how difficult trusts and other um, social care 
practices found it to cope with old buildings and without that capital uh, investment and infrastructure. And of course, there is a question, I think, around funding for both the NHS and social care. So certainly the NHS will, will be looking to ensure that its settlement isn't eroded if government do decide to reverse the national insurance uh, increase. That's a political decision, but for the NHS, we'll be looking to see that their, their settlement remains sound, particularly given the impact of inflation uh, and the question marks around energy policy as we go forwards. We've also heard a suggestion that there might be a transfer of some funding from the NHS to social care, and we're really keen to emphasise that for us, that would be robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's really important that we invest both in the NHS and in social care to ensure yeah. we've got a sustainable system. Miriam, really good to speak to you. Miriam Deacon there, the uh, interim deputy chief executive from NHS providers. In fact, while we've been talking, Neil's just texted in, punitive pension taxes are an issue for all senior doctors. I'm 58 and I can't afford to pay these taxes anymore. I have no option to, but to retire early, which is obviously uh, part of the problem the NHS faces. So then finally, for, uh, Lucy, we turn our attention to Friday. Uh, just before we head into party conference season, Kwasi Kwarteng with his fiscal event, not a budget, because if it was a budget, those big squares at the Office of Budget Responsibility would have to uh, cast their eye over it. Um, I spoke to uh, Paul Johnson, director of the Institute of Fiscal Studies last week, uh, and he wasn't very impressed uh, with the approach so far. It's extraordinary they didn't publish a uh, cost with the announcement. This could actually turn out to be the biggest single fiscal announcement of my lifetime um, because this could cost 150 billion pounds and i can't think of anything else even there was no individual announcement through covid or um, even through the financial crisis that cost that kind of um that kind of money now how much it costs in the end is of course enormously uncertain because it depends on what happens to gas prices going forward and it depends on um how long this policy is in place and one of the things that i i really hope that they've got teams of people working <laughs> for the next year on thinking of something better for next winter because whilst this might be necessary this year it's incredibly expensive it's totally untargeted it gives large amounts of money to people who don't um, don't need it. It means that we're not facing the price signal that, you know, that there is less gas out there and yet yeah. we're being massively subsidised um, and yet we're being massively subsidised to use gas. So any, if it's possible to come up with something better, which is better targeted, then we really ought to be doing it. So what I hoped that she would say is we're putting this in place to get us through next winter and we're pulling out all the stops to come up with something better uh, by this time next year for next winter. But she didn't say that. She didn't say how much it was going to cost. Uh, that was Paul Johnson from the Institute of Fiscal Studies. But, uh, Lucy Fisher, on top of the 100 £150 billion pounds for freezing energy bills, Kwasi Kwarteng is also expected to announce, well, we know of at least already, £30 billion pounds in tax cuts by not going ahead with national insurance and not going ahead with increases in, in corporation tax. Never mind anything else they might want to do, what income tax or whatever it might be. It's phenomenal sums of money. Phenomenal sums of money. And, you know, we've just heard from Paul Johnson there about how much the uh, scrapping the national insurance uh, contribution rise will uh, help the poorest people. There's also a, a lot of controversy about this idea to shelve the planned increase in corporation taxes. There's a paper out today by left-leaning think tank IPPR that says that the UK has the lowest uh, rate of business investment in the G7, despite having record low business taxes. So that really casts doubt on the idea that leaving corporation tax at 19% rather than increasing it to 26% actually encourages businesses 
to invest. And again, that in turn casts doubt on the government's central message about growth and how it's going to unleash this fantastic period of, of you know, businesses booming, catalyzing investment. It's not clear at all that that will actually work. And an opportunity for the Labour Party here, not only to push their message on windfall tax and all that, but they get first dibs on the party conference season as well. Well, they do, but I thought it was um, quite right when uh, James Murray, the shadow uh, chief secretary to the Treasury, appeared on uh, the Times Radio breakfast show this morning. Stig asked him, look, you know, your windfall tax policy would only raise about 30 billion odd uh, under your own estimates. How else do you raise the extra 100 billion odd you'd need to support the energy package of the kind that the government has rolled out? And he was left um, slightly stumped to explain how the Labour Party would do that apart from borrowing, which puts them in the same camp as the government. Lucy Fisher, it's going to be a hell of a week, a hell of a ride, a hell of a week, month. Christmas, Christmas will be here, so it'll be <laughs> fine. Uh, Lucy Fisher, Times Radio's chief political commentator, is back. You're presumably going to, you're going to Liverpool and Birmingham. I certainly am. I'm looking forward to the Egg and Spoon race uh, that you'll be hosting, Correct. Matt. The Egg and Spoon race will be back. We'll see if we can crash onto, what's it called now? Politics Live. I've got cross me. Uh, regular, long-time listeners will know that last year we did an Egg and Spoon race at Labour Party conference and ended up crashing into the back of uh, the um, BBC Two programme, Politics Live. Most interesting thing that's happened on that programme for a very long time. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.